Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. I haven't seen this show yet, but I've been seeing ads for it. Uh, anybody seen it? A couple. Okay. Uh, Special Forces, World's Toughest Test, it's called. Apparently they sent 16 celebrities out into the middle of the desert in Jordan with some Navy SEALs and Marines as their sergeants with the goal of surviving 10 days of Special Forces training. Pretty soon after getting there, despite what they claim was rigorous screening on the front end, some of the celebrities were like, shoot, uh, going out in the hottest place on earth to be relentlessly chewed out by these Special Forces guys might have been a mistake. I'm going to die here in the Jordanian desert. Sounds like there were a couple of hospital ICU visits and a couple of participants who said, never mind, I don't want this. You see, it sounds cool and exciting to go in the desert with special forces dudes by your side. But when the joints start getting dislocated and dehydration starts setting in, most of us wouldn't want that arrangement to continue, not for too long. And it's not a perfect parallel for about a million reasons, but something like the participants on that show being asked over and over, hey, do you really want to go into the desert with these special forces guys? The Bible prompts us to seriously consider, do you really want life with God? Like, do you really want him with you by your side? See, in theory, that sounds cool and exciting. How often do we pray without even thinking, God, be with us today? But what if when we imagine God with us, we aren't really comprehending what that's actually been like for people who have experienced it? Do we want God with us? That's the question God's people are faced with in Exodus 33. Would you turn there with me? You've got a Bible in the seat in front of you. Pull up a Bible app, a Bible. Uh, we're actually going to be in this chapter for two consecutive weeks as we continue our sermon series exploring what are sometimes called the attributes of God. God's attributes, those are the things that he has revealed about who he is. Some of his attributes we're quick to underline when they come up in our Bibles. We love that he's merciful and gracious. We're so comforted by his patience and kindness. Others of his attributes we might never wish for in a million years if we were tasked with imaginatively inventing what a God might be like, right? Those are the attributes that don't give us the warm fuzzies necessarily. And today we look at one of those. It's God's holiness. His holiness. Because of the extensive emphasis on this attribute in God's word, I'm going to draw from a bunch of scripture this morning, but we'll look to Exodus 33 to provide our framework. Where we pick up the story today in Exodus 33, God's people... Uh, Here's what's happened. It's about 1500 B.C. God has just miraculously rescued the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. Right? It's the Red Sea parting that we've seen in the movies. right? And then just chapters later, while Moses is up on Mount Sinai talking to God, the people down at the bottom of the mountain hold a rager celebrating a golden calf that they had created to worship as though it was a visible representation of God, even though 
God had previously insisted time and again that they do not do that. So in chapter 32, God is ready to destroy the whole nation until Moses intervenes. Now we pick up the story in chapter 33. Immediately after this horrible rebellion in chapter 32, in which many ended up dying and God was greatly angered, and we're wondering, what is this major setback, the golden calf incident? What is it? What does it mean for all of God's promises he had made to go before his people and bring them out of Egypt to the land that he promised to their ancestors? Is that in jeopardy now? That's where we pick up here. We can identify three movements in this text. Uh, For the moment, I'm actually not going to preview all of them, but we'll take each of the three in turn. The first one is this. The holy God can't be with us or he would destroy us. The holy God can't be with us or he would destroy it. Destroy us. Look at it with me. Chapter 33, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses. Go up from here, from Mount Sinai. You and the people you brought up from the land of Egypt. To the land I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your offspring. I will send an angel ahead of you and will drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hethites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. See God reaffirming his promises, right? They were never meant to stay at Sinai. God says, I'm still going to bring you to the land I promised you. But then he continues. But I will not go up with you because you are a stiff-necked people. Otherwise, I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard this bad news, they mourned and didn't put on their jewelry. For the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I, went up for you for, if I went up with you for a single moment, I would destroy you. Now take off your jewelry and I'll decide what to do with you. So the Israelites remain stripped of their jewelry from Mount Horeb onward. See, the idea of God accompanying his people from Egypt to Mount Sinai and then from Mount Sinai to the promised land, it sounds really cool. If you remember up to this point, he had been going before them by a pillar of cloud by day that lit up on fire at night. Amazing, right? But as cool as it sounds, God says here, let me tell you what it would actually be like if I went with you all the way to the promised land. One moment in close proximity to you, and I'd destroy you. He says it in verse 3 and repeats it in verse 5 in case we missed it. The people have shown themselves to be stiff-necked, which... We've all been. When we think like this, we say, I know what God says, but I want to take a shot at doing it my way. See how your neck just kind of like stiffens up even when you start thinking that way? And God's like, yeah, if that's your posture and you're in close proximity to me, you'll be utterly consumed. We might think of a moth that flies too close to it. A flame, or now NASA has shown us stars that wander too close to black holes. Right? This was formerly a star; it's been shredded, and it's just a tailspin of gas now. After it came a few million miles too close to a black hole, right? It's getting torn apart, utterly overwhelmed by the sheer power of an otherness of what it has encountered. Right? Problem: God is even weightier than this black hole. Friends, if we had an accurate sense of what it would actually be like to be in God's presence, we'd be terrified to pray the prayer, God, be with me today. 
Because let's be honest, our necks are no less stiff than Israel's were. Which of us hasn't said in our hearts, I know God supposedly wants me to live this way, but come on, what's the big deal if I live this way instead, just this once? That's our nature. We're stiff-necked from birth. And every day, every hour, we assume the posture again. I belong to me. I'll call the shots. In light of that, the God who made us has as much right to obliterate us as we have the right to flatten our Play-Doh creations and remake the clay into something else. The maker can do what the maker wants with what he's made. Yet, do you catch the incredible grace here? Even though Israel has just spit in his face, he doesn't call off the plan. Look at it. I will send an angel ahead of you and will drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hethites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, just like I told you you would. See, astoundingly, their rebellion doesn't prompt God to abandon them. Not completely. He's just going to distance himself. Instead of, I'll go with you, it's now, I'll send my angel ahead of you. That's his pledge to mercifully preserve their lives by keeping himself at a safe distance. Why? Because the holy God can't be with stiff-necked humans like us or he would destroy us. I guess we shouldn't get too much further into a sermon about God's holiness without quickly defining what we mean by holy. It's, it's tricky not to oversimplify what the word holy means because in the Hebrew Bible we see holy ground, holy clothing, holy animals, holy oil, holy people. And we ask, what do all these have in common? It's this. They became holy when brought in proximity to a holy God. That's why holy is, it comes from a word meaning to cut, and it's, it's often defined as set apart or other, particularly set apart in some godish way or for some godish purpose. Anything that is called holy, in other words, is only called holy because of its proximity to a set apart God. In other words, to say that God's holy is to say that he's not just the best that we could think of and then infinitely bettered. Rather, he's totally other. There are at least two dimensions in which he's totally other. Uh, he's set apart from us, his creatures, in his essence and in his character. To say he's holy in his essence is to say that he's God and we're not. There's none like him in his being, in his essential qualities. He's not a souped-up version of us. He's in his own category. As we quoted Tozer last week, the wall separating that which is God from that which is not God is infinitely high. But then we need to point out that he's totally set apart in his character, too. <clears throat> because he's not just way, way more morally good than we are. No, no, he's in a different category of moral purity, so much so that sin is just consumed in his presence like a fire. Now, our text today is, is one of many that clarify a common misunderstanding about this sort of a holy God who can't and won't tolerate impurity, and it's this. It's not that he wants to destroy sinful people. He positively doesn't want to destroy us, right? That's why he graciously proposes this plan to withdraw himself from them. It's to save their lives, right? Still, the fact remains that he's utterly intolerant of sin. 
even if we never see him eager to consume sin, even if scripture teaches us that doing so brings him no delight when he does it, he'll do it. He will consume sin because it's not only that he won't affirm sin, he won't allow it in his presence for a single moment. His holiness is such that he can't and he doesn't want to. What's this mean for us? Well, if we're rightly painting a picture right now of a God who is actually there, it's not confusing to me why we sometimes find it so tempting to just keep him at arm's length. Both as individuals and as entire churches, and maybe, maybe you know what I mean at a church level. <clears throat> like if we're talking about a God who consumes the sinful like a black hole shredding a star, a God like that can disrupt a church's five-year vision and annual financial prospectus, to say the least. If you let a God like that around your Sunday service, he's going to irritate the heck out of comfortable people in the congregation who previously loved you and thought you were wonderful. That's why many pastors and churches, maybe knowingly, probably unknowingly, have gone the other route of saying, wait, 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 wait. Are you saying there's an option by which we can offer people the land flowing with milk and honey, but they don't have to be brought into the proximity of a holy God? There's a market for that. Let's do that. And so the sermon series all revolve around the milk and honey. The promised land of relational success, better relationships. The promised land of financial freedom. The promised land of a better you. Sure, God is mentioned, but only insofar as he wants to help you reach the promised land. See, if there's a, a zone of proximity inside of which God is likely to endanger my hopes and dreams and plans for my life. Plenty of churches keep themselves just outside that zone. Because if we don't get too close to encountering God on his own terms, we're kept safe from the more terrifying aspects of who he is. And of course, there's an individual version of this that we all have been tempted with as well. For me, it looks like this. Man, I don't want to become that guy who's like super spiritual. Or hey, I don't want my kids to think our whole life revolves around our religion. Or I don't want to start getting too radical about faith. And we can justify ourselves in that thinking. We say things like, well, it's just I don't want my kids to resent church. Or it's just I want to be relatable to people. Do you know what I think my real reason is sometimes for wanting to keep God at arm's length? Because I'm a little worried I might get consumed. Like if I were to get too close to him, what if I couldn't live up to the holiness required to be in such proximity to God? What if I was exposed as a fraud in the light of his presence? In other words, I'm not sure it's safe to get that close. Let me keep him out here keep myself at a safe distance. See, it's safer to aim for being like sort of close to God. Close enough to get the milk and honey. But not that close to God to where he becomes threatening. Yet. We need the holy God with us or we'd be no different from anyone else. 
We need the holy God with us or we'd be no different from anyone else. <clears throat> you know, as misguided and as stiff-necked as these people are, they've got one thing right in this passage, and it's already been hinted at in the verses we already read here. They're convinced it would be awful to go to the promised land without God with them. Even with the guaranteed victory, even with the milk and honey awaiting them, the people are sad. We'll see that Moses is sad. They know God's presence is the only thing that provides their existence with purpose. They know that their family line was set apart from all the other families on earth to be a blessing to the rest of earth's families, Genesis 12. And so without God's presence, they know they don't have any blessing to offer the world and therefore don't have any unique identity in this world. So we saw in these first six verses that it's the opposite now of the revelry that characterized the previous chapter. Now the jewelry's off. Even God's reaffirmed promise of conquest isn't a consolation for them. They recognize that what they have now is far less than what they had before. Let's look specifically at what changes uh, after God makes that declaration that he's going to step himself back to distance himself from Israel. Follow along with me, starting in verse 7. Now Moses took a tent and pinched it, pitched it where? Outside the camp, at a distance from the camp. He called it the tent of meeting. Anyone who wanted to consult the Lord would go to the tent of meeting that was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would stand up, each one at the door of his tent, and they would watch Moses until he entered the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and remain at the entrance to the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. As all the people saw the pillar of cloud remaining at the entrance to the tent, they would stand up and bow and worship each one at the door of his tent. The Lord would speak with Moses face to face, just as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. His assistant, the young man Joshua, son of Nun, would not leave the inside of the tent. Moses said to the Lord, Look, you have told me, lead this people up, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. He said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor with me. Now, if I have indeed found favor with you, please teach me your ways, and I will know you so that I may find favor with you. Now, consider that this nation is your people. And he replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. If your presence does not go, Moses responded to him, don't make us go up from here. How will it be known that I and your people have found favor with you unless you go with us? I and your people will be distinguished by this from all the other people on the face of the earth. Summary of what has changed in the verses we just read. Instead of community life centering around the tabernacle in the middle of the camp, there's now just a lowly tent of meeting that stands vacant unless Moses or Joshua are in it. This tent of meeting is outside the camp. A visible reminder that God has removed himself from their midst. And sure, God's angels still promise to go before them. And sure, that they can see Moses is still experiencing life with God. But they're finding that their own access to God now has to go through one more line of communication. And as we saw, they're despondent about it. Let's pause there for a brief thought exercise, maybe. If, think about this. If you were offered eternity with gold streets, pearly gates, mansions on the hill, and feasts of finest food, 
seeing all your deceased loved ones, all that we've been told the Bible promises about heaven. But the only catch being that God's presence wasn't there. Would that be a place you'd want to spend eternity? That's why a better question than do you want to go to heaven might be, do you want God? The place I just described is infinitely closer to being hell than it is to being heaven. Despite all their stubbornness, stiff-necked Israel still understood from experience that life without God's presence would quite literally be hell. And that God himself is the only treasure that makes life worth living, both now in this life and in the life to come. And so the people of Israel here, they feel the severity of this sanction that God has imposed on them. Despite simultaneously recognizing the mercy that's also embedded in it, yes, God is saving our lives by withdrawing from us, but the thought of living apart from his presence is too much to bear. And so as we read, Moses goes back to God to ask him, would you reconsider and go with us after all? And, and note what comes through as central in the desires of Moses' heart here. Just a couple bullet point observations. <coughs> More than anything, Moses wants to know God. More than anything. He knows what we're reminding each other of through this sermon series, that knowing God is ultimately all that matters. But check it out. Instead of trying to get to know God by asking, God, give me a mystical experience with you, so intimate that there are no words for the overwhelming emotions I feel, what does he ask God for instead? Teach me your ways, and I'll know you. That's instructive for me, as I find myself yearning for the big emotional catharsis, that moment with God that can't be put into words, right? Well, God's like, what you really need is to have a handle on my standards, my methods, my blessings, my ways. And Moses couldn't be more emphatic about the central request that God go with them, not just send an angel before them. And you notice God agrees right away. It only took one prayer, and God's like, yep, okay, my presence will go with you, and I'll give you rest. He, he changes what he had said, that he's not going to go with them. He says, okay, I will. But Moses doubles down on it anyway. He's like, God, I'm serious. Please do not make us go without you from here. And at the heart of that desire is, God, your presence is what makes us different. Moses knew, hey, God, you told us that we're supposed to bless the nations, all the nations on earth. But we're never going to bless the nations by showing them how similar we are to them. Just a little better at war, maybe. What good does that do them? We bless them not by how we're similar to them, but in how we're different from them. By offering something refreshing that they don't have, namely, a holy God who is here with us. I wonder, do our hearts break like Moses' heart broke? at the idea that God's people, Christian churches today, would be successful, so to speak, but not different from the world. That we'd offer the world everything the world is looking for, but not the one thing they need, namely, an encounter with the holy God. I'll confess that I've gotten this mixed up sometimes. I've slipped into adopting the mindset that uh, what the world desperately needs is to see a church that's more similar to them. 
when really in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God has always said the same thing. Hey, your distinctiveness is precisely the thing of value that you have to offer to the world. Here's the classic formulation of it given to Israel in the Hebrew Bible and then applied directly to the church in the New Testament. Be holy because I am holy. If there was ever an attribute of God that we would expect not to be applied to humans, okay, this one's just for God. Surely it would be his holiness, right? I mean, the very essence of what we're saying when we say God is holy is that we're saying that he's not like us. Yet, now Israel and Leviticus and the church in 1 Peter are told, be holy because I am holy. Here's what it means. Even though our holiness is never going to be identical to God's, just like our love will never be identical to God's, our mercy will never be identical to God's, for God to call us to be holy is to say that his people need to be set apart. For centuries, he mandated a very literal cutting away in the form of circumcision to tangibly represent this, right? I cut you away from all those people, he says, and I, now I call you to cut away all the impurity from your life. So when God gives the food laws to Israel, for example, he doesn't say, hey, stay away from this group of foods because following this kosher diet will make you healthier. If that was the reasoning, he could have just said that, right? But what's the actual reason he gives for the kosher laws? Because I am the Lord. In other words, from the earliest days, he was aiming to show his people that ultimately the proper posture for us as human beings toward a holy God is, God, I don't need any more reason to follow you, even your most minor commands, besides the fact that you're God and I'm not. In fact, if you flip back to Leviticus and you, and you look up the context of this verse right here, be holy because I am holy, it's not reinforcing the Ten Commandments or prohibitions on murder or sexuality, it's giving direction on food laws. God's question to Israel is effectively this, will you obey me just because I say so, and I'm the holy God? And it's the same question for his church today. Will we obey, even when we don't fully understand, just because he's a holy God? Are we that kind of a distinct people? If not, I'm with Moses in that case. If we're just like the world, I'm not sure what we have to offer the world. But if we're willing to be distinct in all the right ways, holy because we've come to walk in proximity to a holy God, now we've got a purpose in this world. Now we've got something to offer. Yet, we've got this unresolved problem to deal with. Back at numeral one, namely that the holy God can't be with us or he would destroy us. Let's read to verse 17 to get the good news that a holy God can be with us if a mediator intervenes on our behalf. Take a look at this. Similar to verse 14, but look at the reasoning given. Verse 17, the Lord answered Moses, I will do this very thing you asked, for you have found favor with me, and I know you by name. Moses here serves as mediator just as he did in the previous chapters and he's able to do so not just because he holds some title as leader of God's people 
It's because he has lived in holiness. You found favor with me. And because he's lived in intimate relationship with God. I know you by name. We might appreciate the significance of that if we contrast Moses with others who end up coming along in Scripture as leaders of God's people. For example, King Uzziah, several centuries later in 2 Chronicles 26. King Uzziah is a respected king. He's held the nation of Israel together for over 50 years in that role. He knows that God has clearly instructed that priests are the only ones authorized to enter the sanctuary to offer incense. But one day he decides, after 50 years of faithful service as king of Judah, he says, I'm going to go ahead and offer incense today at the sanctuary. I'm the king after all. So God immediately strikes him with a skin disease and Uzziah dies in disgrace. Why? Because he has transgressed that zone of proximity and gotten too close to a holy God without the accompanying personal holiness required. And so despite his 50-year track record, he's effectively consumed. God's people are shaken by this, as you can imagine. What sort of a God is this that we serve? Which of us has any chance in living in, in such close proximity in, to his presence? Maybe it's not a coincidence that that same year, Isaiah gets his vision of God in the heavenly throne room. Here it is, Isaiah 6. I preached on it a few years back and I sent out that sermon this past week for those who wanted to review. What does Isaiah hear these heavenly beings saying to God day and night? Holy. Holy, holy, superlative of superlatives, bolded and underlined. He's holy. And how does Isaiah describe God's appearance? Well, he's able to scrawl out a few words uh, describing the magnitude of the hem of his robe. It's as far as he can get, describing God himself. He doesn't even try to tell us anything else about what he sees about God besides the hem of his robe. Even these sinless angels are hiding their eyes in the presence of this holy God. But Isaiah has another reason to fall flat on his face. Unlike the morally perfect angels who nevertheless still have to cover their eyes, Isaiah is also a morally compromised human. And so he's flattened by a sudden consuming awareness of his sin. Woe to me, for I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the king the Lord of armies. All it takes is one glimpse of the Holy One. And immediately Isaiah realizes it doesn't matter that I'm, I might be a better person than some others. All that matters is how I compare to God. And on that measure, my ruin must be imminent. It's an emotionally violent experience he has. As it is for Israel in Exodus 33 and as it has been for many of us who have had intimate encounters with God. And I don't know, <clears throat> maybe to you the idea of someone experiencing an emotionally violent internal wreckage as they're overcome by the weight of their sin and guilt and shame before a holy God, maybe that sounds very medieval to you. Like haven't we all kind of reached a consensus that it was pretty backwards when those poor ignorant souls used to crowd the village churches of Europe on their faces in tears, hoping to avoid God's wrath. 
Perhaps there were backward elements of that. Nevertheless, two realities remain. One is from Tim Keller, and it's this. To stay away from Christianity because part of the Bible is offensive assumes that if there is a God, he wouldn't have any views that upset you. What kind of God did we expect? Second, we should affirm that despite all the excess and superstition and misguided solutions to deal with guilt in medieval Europe, those medieval folks got one thing right. The Bible does present a holy God who is every bit as dreadful and terrible as they imagined him in the Middle Ages. Proximity to the presence of the Holy One means death for us, which is quite hopeless. But it's only on the dark canvas of this hopelessness that we're able to appreciate the brilliant splash of light in all this, namely, and catch this, that God is not just holy in his essential and ethical otherness from us, but he's also holy in his propensity to move toward us. Like no other God has ever done or claimed to do. We raise our fist at him, yet he moves toward us in love. Israel worships another God. Meanwhile, the holy God is already at work raising up Moses as a mediator to intervene and save. I mean, you read it. Moses prays one prayer, and God immediately says, full restoration of my presence granted. Moses didn't have to twist God's arm. God's heart was yearning to save his people. He was delighted when Moses opened his mouth to pray those words. In fact, God appointed Moses to pray those words so that he could save his people in response to that prayer. That holy inclination in God to move toward his sinful people in love is the same inclination that makes some, make provision of the burning coal for Isaiah that is touched to Isaiah's lips and purifies him when he should have been destroyed. And it's the same inclination that moves the holy God to send his son, Jesus Christ. The God-man and thus the perfect mediator between God and humanity, even during his time on earth, some perceptive voices would call Jesus by name as one of they call him, the Holy One of Israel. And that he was. The Holy One of Israel who came to die to make his people holy. Ephesians 5. And so from our vantage point now, this side of the cross, we can see that what might have seemed to Israel like it was an empty threat back in Exodus 33 wasn't an empty threat at all. Remember those ominous words that we started with? If I went up with you for a single moment, I would destroy you. The God who said these words doesn't make empty threats. Rather, he knew that by responding favorably to Moses' plea a few verses down from this, saying, okay, I will go with you after all, he was sentencing himself to death on the people's behalf. You see how the cross of Christ fulfills Exodus 33? The destruction Israel deserved was carried out when Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the only human who ever perfectly submitted to the will of the Father, was destroyed, so to speak, on that cross so that these stiff-necked Israelites 1,500 years before didn't have to be. 
He was destroyed on that cross so that we stiff-necked Gentiles 2,000 years later don't have to be. And that's the only reason why we've dared to approach God with confidence this morning and sing songs to him and lift up prayers to him and open up his word and try our best with feeble words to describe what's being said here. Because we get to read his holiness through the lens of the good news that Jesus' blood washes over us and makes us holy so that we can stand in God's presence without being swallowed up. That's why our full big idea today is actually this. Proximity to the presence of the Holy One does mean death for us unless a God-appointed mediator intervenes. Unless a God-appointed mediator intervenes. This is how the holiness that should really be terrifying to us becomes beautiful to the Christian. It has actually become what we treasure about God. That's why we keep reading this odd phrase in Scripture as part of our call to worship today, the splendor of his holiness over and over again. If God's holiness has become splendid to us, then, among other things, this means it means that casualness can't be the height of intimacy with God. Our God is every bit as terrible as Isaiah believed him to be when he said, I am ruined, but we approach him with the added confidence that his holiness also is what moves him to touch the coal to our lips. And that coal has already been touched to our lips. We have already been made pure by the consuming fire of God's holiness that swallowed up Jesus in my place. Such that I stand now under the cleansing blood of Christ. And so we come to him not looking for some sort of flowery feeling, but rather seeking to know him in the midst of our fear and trembling. Just like a pampered celebrity who has been invited to participate in the special forces training, we do well to ask ourselves soberly, friends, do we actually want God to go with us? And as terrifying as it may be, we very much do. Life's not worth living without him. That's not because the people of days gone by were wrong about him and he's not so scary. It's because even though he's every bit that scary in Christ, he has made a way for us to be in his presence, to experience intimacy with him as with a bridegroom or with a, as, as with a loving father. And as such, holiness, is, it's, it's no longer just something we admire in him. It's what we want to be adorned in as well. Be holy because I am holy. He said, we, so we pray, Lord, robe me in your holiness. Lord, may people who look at me see something godish. Just as you cut out Israel from the nations long ago when you cut Abram out of Ur, now you've cut me, a Gentile, from the world around me by my baptism. Make my life distinct because you're living in me. As you know, we're, we're, we're trying to get to know God for who he is during this series. I'm convinced that there's spiritual power that's only accessible to the extent that our picture of God is accurate. But I kind of swallowed hard this week as I realized if we do this and as we do this for the next 19 weeks, we may find ourselves more proximate to God 
And though that's a glorious prospect, it's a weighty prospect. And as such, let's pray. I, I think I'd like to make time actually for a, a full two minutes of silent prayer right now. I know that's an eternity. <clears throat> but we might all need to go before God in a different way. So I, for this moment, I don't want to put words into your mouth in prayer. I want to make room for you to pray as you feel led. Feel free to sit, stand, kneel, walk. You can use the kneelers if you'd like. And then after some extended time of silence, I'll pray a closing prayer out loud. And we can continue doing whatever work we need to do with God during the final worship song. Let's pray now in silence. Father, your holy heart was so inclined toward us sinners in love that you made a way for us to live in your presence. Jesus Christ, you took the destruction that we deserved so that we would never have to face that destruction ourselves. And Holy Spirit, you've affected our adoption such that we can cry out, Abba, Father, to holy God. For this triune God, we praise you, and we're thankful. In Jesus' name, amen.